Really thankful for our music team leading us in worship this morning as we sing to the Lord, but we continue to worship this morning as we turn to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to focus in on verses 11 through 16 this morning, Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 16, and I must confess that studying the book of Jonah has been a real blessing Uh, In my time as I prepare for these sermons, I trust that it's been a blessing to you as well. There is so much, I didn't realize just how much is in the book of Jonah, which is certainly a blessing, but then it's also a struggle. Because there are so much in the book of Jonah, it can be hard to decide what is it that I want to share with you from this book on Sunday morning. And so there are a ton of threads that could be pulled throughout this account of Jonah's life. So if I don't necessarily cover one this morning, it's not because it's not there. It's not because it's not good. It's just because of the nature of the constraint on Sunday mornings. We only have so much time uh, to pay heed to these things. And so I trust that the Lord will use whatever he has prepared for you this morning through his servant, in order to bless your life. As we turn to the word of God, let's go to him one more time in a word of prayer and declare our dependency on him in all things. Father, what a a glorious thing it is. As we think about Christ our glory, as we think about the exaltation of Jesus, as we think about even the Old Testament and the unfolding of redemptive history, How even from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, you are pointing us toward the redemption that we find in Jesus. That you are pointing us towards the need for a sacrifice. That you are pointing us toward the need for someone to take our place. To be a substitute for us. And even as we think about the book of Jonah and the role that he plays within that unfolding of redemptive history, Lord, we trust and believe that Jonah points us all the more to our need for you, to our need for Jesus, to the salvation that is offered to those who will trust and put their faith in him. We're so thankful this morning that we can gather, and I pray among your saints and even those who may not know you this morning as Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would move by your Spirit and that you would impress upon us this morning that which you have for us. We're so thankful for it, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we begin our time this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. It's a pretty personal question. The question is this. How do you respond to the hard things in your life? How do you respond to the hard things that the Lord places in your life? When we left off with our sailors last time we were together, we found them right smack dab in the middle of a raging storm. A storm that we found out threatened their very lives. Several times we learn of the fear and the uncertainty of the sailors, wondering what had brought such displeasure from the sea. Until God reveals 
his purpose and plan for the storm in the casting of lots. If you remember, last time we were together, we looked at this idea of the casting of lots and God's sovereign control over them, so much so that even the little tossing of dice points us to the culprit by which this storm has fallen upon these sailors. We learned last time that the lot falls on Jonah. And for the first time in our account, Jonah confesses his sin before the sailors and before his God. Notice it with me in Jonah chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. It says this, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. In our text last time, we saw that Jonah confesses his sin before the sailors. He declares the majesty of the God of Scripture in the storm. And he also voices his disobedience. Hear this, beloved. The storm was a measure by his loving and sovereign God to wake him up from his spiritual stupor. Jonah acknowledges this, and the sailors now know that the God of the Hebrews, who directs the winds and the waves, has brought this storm upon them because of his great love for Jonah, for these sailors, as well as for Nineveh. Let us not forget that this is God's ultimate end in the story. Through this entire episode, God's desire is to send Jonah to the people of Nineveh in order that he might call them out from their sin and God might exercise mercy upon them. All of the things that are happening in this story, God is directing towards that end. Because, beloved, what we learn in the book of Jonah is that God is the author of history. And therefore, God is the author of reality. In this account of Jonah's life, we see that God uses the laws of nature which he put in place in order to bring about the repentance of Jonah, the sailors, and the world. God has a purpose in this judgment slash discipline slash chastisement. I'm going to be using those words interchangeably this morning to see that God had a loving purpose for Jonah even in the midst of this raging storm. Now just to be sure, not all hardship is judgment or discipline from the Lord. Just because you are facing something hard in your life does not necessarily mean that God is chastising you like He is this wayward prophet. 
Not all hardship is judgment or correction, but all hardship has purpose because the God of purpose is behind it all. God has caused this extraordinary storm as a means to bring Jonah back to himself. And both he and the sailors know it. And what I find interesting in our passage for this morning is how Jonah and the sailors respond to this revelation of God's power and authority. Both parties know that they are up against a superior force. Both parties know that they cannot escape the will of the Lord. Both parties are experiencing the Lord's insistence for redemption as it grows stronger and stronger against them. They are aware at this point that they are fighting against the Lord of the universe. But instead of crying out for mercy, what do they do? What we see in our text for this morning, beloved, is man's typical response to God's loving judgment. We also will see at the end of this sermon this morning, God's purpose for judgment is redemption. But first, let's see the response of both Jonah and the sailors to the revelation in verse 10. Look at it with me, Jonah chapter 1, verse 11. We will begin reading this morning. It says this, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men, that is the sailors, feared the Lord, that is Yahweh, exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What we find in our text this morning are two typical responses to God's judgment. Two typical responses of men to God's judgments. And the first, if you're following along in the bulletin insert, man's response to judgment, the first is Jonah's despondency. Jonah's response is despondency or discouragement or dejection. All D's that'll fit, if you'd like to use any of those, you're welcome to. Notice how Jonah responds to the Lord's correction in Jonah chapter 1, verse 12. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It would seem here 
that Jonah has resigned himself to his fate. Remember, Jonah is telling the story from hindsight. And so although we know the rest of the story, at this point, Jonah has no idea that a great fish is going to come along, swallow him up, take him back to shore, and spit him out. At this point in the story, verse 12, Jonah is so disheartened by his circumstances that he gives himself over to death itself. Essentially, what Jonah says here in verse 12 is he says, kill me and God will be satisfied. And we know that this is Jonah's response for two reasons. The first is the nature of the situation. The second is how the sailors respond to Jonah's suggestion. Remember, Jonah is sailing to Tarshish, halfway across the known world. And so by this time, it would seem that they are far enough from shore that to be tossed overboard would mean certain death. It's not like Jonah can just swim back to the dock at this point. No, Jonah's desire here is to sink even further down and away from the presence of the Lord. And the sailors know that this is what Jonah is suggesting. Notice their response in verse 14. It says this, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. The sailors are well aware that at this point Jonah is giving himself over to death and they do not want to be responsible for it. Instead of, instead of Jonah calling out to God, he is content to sink all the more down into his own self-pity and his own despondency even unto death. Sinclair Ferguson says this in his book, Man Overboard, about this section. He says, there was nothing left for Jonah now. He felt that God had no more use for him. He was no longer sure whether he was a true servant of God or not. He now felt both physically and spiritually a castaway with no guarantee of rescue and the expectation of the reverse. In our passage, we find Jonah absolutely defeated by his circumstance, and he resigns himself to God's judgment. Jonah has given up. And I'm afraid Jonah is not alone, beloved, in these feelings of despondency. How often have the saints of the past felt dejected and defeated by the circumstances around them? How often have the brothers and sisters of the past had to fight for the joy of their salvation? Maybe you're familiar with the complaint of the psalmist in Psalm 73. You're welcome to turn there, keep a finger in the book of Jonah, turn to Psalm 73, which is found on page 455 in your chair Bible, if you are following along in that. Psalm 73 says this, 
Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's almost as if at the outset here, the psalmist is seeking to remind him of the goodness of God. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Jump down to verse 12 of Psalm 73. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. There I discerned their end. In Psalm 73, the psalmist seems to be completely depressed by his circumstances. Essentially, he is saying, what does it matter if I follow the Lord? The wicked are the ones who are prospering. He says, I struggle all the days of my life and it's just not worth it. It seems that all the toil is in vain and I might as well just give up. Brothers and sisters, how often do you find yourselves in the psalmist's shoes? What we learn about the psalmist in Psalm 73 is that he takes his dejection and his depression into the house of God so that he might be reminded of what God is doing in the midst of his circumstances. We also see this kind of discouragement in the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. I believe you can find it on the insert in your bulletin. It says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What we see in Jonah, what we see in the psalmist, and even what we see in the Apostle Paul, is that the fight of faith the fight of faith is to not let your circumstances overwhelm you to the point of throwing in the towel, but instead to trust in God's providence and purposes. In our story, we know that God had a purpose in the storm. It was to win back this wayward prophet. And instead of Jonah crying out to the Lord, he gives up. Beloved, how often do you find yourself in Jonah's shoes? How often do you respond to difficult circumstances in the same way? How often are you so overwhelmed by the tempest of the sea that you would rather die than endure one more second of the rough and tumble? How often have you been tempted to just give up? In your parenting, 
in your job, in your sickness, in your poverty? How often are you tempted to just give up on what the Lord is seeking to do in your life and circumstances? Beloved, we must remember this. Just because it is hard does not mean it is not good. The storm was fierce, but God was good. And God was using the storm as a means of His loving judgment. He was seeking to draw Jonah back to Himself. Hardship does not always mean judgment, but God's purpose in hardship is always to draw us closer to Himself. Let me say that again. Hardship does not always mean judgment, but God's purpose in hardship is always to draw us closer to Himself. Beloved, just because your circumstances are difficult does not mean that the Lord is not working. The lesson of Jonah here, as we will see, is that God has a plan for the storm. God redeems through hardship. But before we get there, let's take a look at the second typical response of men to the correction and judgment of the Lord. We notice it in the sailor's response, which is determination. The sailor's response is determination. Notice it in verse 13 with me. It says this, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grow, grew more and more tempestuous against them. You see, the sailors will not accept Jonah's sacrifice. Instead, their plan is to put more muscle into it. They are going to sit down at the oars and they are going to get themselves out of this predicament. The text literally says here that the sailors dug the oars into the water. Jonah gives up. The sailors refuse. They dig in. They work harder. They strive against the Lord's will. Twice the author lets us know that the tempest has grown stronger. We go from the tempest being so strong in verse 4 that the ship threatens to break up to the tempest growing stronger in verse 11 to finally the sea growing more and more tempestuous in verse 14. What we find here is that these men have hit a brick wall. There is no labor that will appease or circumvent the loving judgment of God upon this stubborn and disobedient prophet. God will have His loving way and no one can stop Him. And maybe, just maybe, you are more like the sailors this morning than you are like Jonah. Maybe you're here this morning and you are striving against the Lord. 
Maybe you are fighting the Lord at every turn. You refuse to submit to His loving ways in your life. Maybe you are determined to get yourself back into good, God's good graces by your works. Or maybe you have set aside the Lord's will altogether and have determined that you will make your own path forward. But beloved, let me assure you that it will never work. Much like these sailors, God's desire for us is not to make our own way, but instead to accept and embrace His way. God's desire for these sailors and for us is that we might submit to His plan of redemption. What we learned from our passage this morning is that God does not desire for us to be depressed over our sin or even to muster up enough discipline to work for God or against God. But brothers and sisters, His desire for each one of us this morning is that we cry out to Him in mercy. His desire for us this morning is to be ever dependent upon the Lord and His good work, both in our initial salvation as well as our ongoing salvation. What we find in this passage is that God will accomplish His desires for us and He wants us to embrace and submit to Him. And furthermore, He wants us to rely upon His strength and His ability through it. He wants us to embrace His purposes. That is what He desired from Jonah from the very get-go. It's what He desires from these sailors. And it's also what He desires from you and from me. Man's solution is either to give up or to strive against. But God's desire for us is to trust in Him. We find this in our second thing from this text. Not only do we see man respond, responding to God's judgment, but we also see that God redeems through judgment. God redeems through judgment. Notice Jonah chapter 1, verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. The word there is the word Yahweh. It's the aspect of God that we were introduced from the very beginning of this book. These sailors, after trying all that they could with all their might to stand up against God's will, finally call out to the Lord. In the midst of their inability, they finally surrender to the Lord's will. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly where God desires for us to be. God often brings us to the depths of despair because it is there alone where we are broken enough to set aside our depression and set aside our discipline and throw ourselves upon the sweet 
and saving mercy of God. Now their request to the Lord is interesting. It shows their inexperience with Yahweh and their fledgling faith at this point. Notice the sailors' request. It says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You see, their desire is to escape further judgment. They're already experiencing the disciplining hand of the Lord through Jonah's disobedience, and they are not interested in incurring any more of his displeasure at their own expense. But what they don't understand is that God has orchestrated this very moment in the life of Jonah and the sailors to teach them and to teach us God's mercy in sacrifice. Notice what happens in the next verse, verse 15. It would seem that God was not finished with Jonah yet. God was still using him to declare his will, even in the midst of his disobedience. For we see that Jonah's declaration in verse 12 becomes reality in verse 15. Notice verse 12 with me. It says this, He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. Verse 15, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Now here in our text, we see a very important foreshadowing. I've said before that Jonah points us forward to Jesus in a number of ways. Here again, we see that the message of Jonah is intended to point us to the superiority of Jesus Christ. In this account of Jonah, we see that one man is sacrificed for the salvation of many sailors. We see that the assumed death of Jonah brings about the calming of God's wrath for the world, which is clearly represented here by these sailors. The sailors submit to God's plan of sacrificing Jonah and the seas immediately cease from their raging. You see, beloved, God saves these men through his judgment on Jonah. And this demonstration of control brings the sailors to their knees in worship. Notice it at the end of verse 15. It says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The language here, even the repetition of the covenant name of God, that is Yahweh, indicates that the sailors will never be the same after this interaction with Jonah and his God. It is clear that the demonstration of divine power has transformed these sailors forever. 
and they sacrifice to the Lord, and they vow themselves to the God of Jonah. Here we see God's intent for Jonah to prefigure Christ. Much like Jonah, one would come in the future that would offer a similar sacrifice. One day, a prophet would come and would give his own life for the salvation of many. John chapter 11, verse 49 through 53, you can find it on the back of your insert in your bulletin. We read this, verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jonah prefigures Christ in that the wrath of God was appeased because of the sacrifice of another. The judgment of God was carried out on Jesus in order that you and I might be saved. And we enjoy this salvation as we give up our striving and we trust in God's plan of redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. But there are also ways that Jonah does not prefigure Christ here. Jonah is a man responsible for his own disobedience. And therefore, his death is justified. But beloved, Jesus is a man completely free of sin. And therefore, his death was absolutely unjustified. In short, Jonah deserved to die. Jesus did not. This is even recognized by the pagan king Pilate in the Gospel of John. Three times in verses 18, or sorry, chapters 18 through 19, Pilate declares the innocence of Jesus. Again, you can find it on the insert in your bulletin. John chapter 18, verse 38 says this, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. John chapter 19, verse 4, Pilate went out and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. John chapter 9, verse 6, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt guilt in him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is better than Jonah. 
Jesus is better than Jonah because Jonah was a man running from God's will and Jesus was the God-man running towards God's will in spite of the cross that was ahead. But in both cases, God would bring salvation through judgment. Judgment on Jonah for his own sins, but judgment on Christ for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is better than Jonah. Jesus is better than Jonah because Jonah is answering for his own rebellion here in Jonah chapter 1, but Jesus answers for ours. Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, for our running from God. And he is calling each one of us this morning to trust in his salvation through another. Not through our own striving or our own works, but through Christ. As we have seen before, we see again. Beloved, hear this. The point of Jonah is not to immortalize Jonah. It is to exalt Jesus Christ. The point of Jonah is to show that Jesus is always better. The sacrifice of Jonah saved the lives of the sailors and led them to worship the God of creation. But the sacrifice of Jesus saves the souls of millions upon millions and restores them to a right relationship with their covenant God, that is Yahweh. The sacrifice of Jesus can save you from the penalty and the power of your sins this morning. Do you believe that? Are you trusting in Him? Not in your discipline or your depression, but are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? He is calling each one of us to trust Him in the midst of our storms. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful this morning for this Word. We're so thankful that You give us your will and desire for each one of us. That your desire for us is to be dependent on you in all things. And so Father, as we leave this place, may you use the word as only you can use it. May you use it to transform hearts. If there are those this morning who are running from you and do not know you as Lord and Savior, Father, would you work in their hearts in a way that only you can do so? Father, would you bring them to repentance? Would they turn from their ways? And would they trust in yours? Would they give themselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ? We're so thankful that it's because of him that we can sing, that we can have confidence, and that we can gather this morning to worship you. And so we pray this in your name. 